Hey everybody, Aaron Bishop here. I just wanted to let you know I have written a book. It has been published and it is available now on Amazon.com. The name of the book is The Power of Passover, A Christian's Guide to the Festival of Redemption. If you want to know what Passover is about, just a really deep dive into the festival, into its history, and into why we're where we're at today. And even an instruction guide on how to hold your own Passover. It's got everything in it. So if you'd like to check that out, go to Amazon.com and search for The Power of Passover. And now we return you to your regularly scheduled program. I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we dig beneath the surface of the text of the Bible to discover what lies beneath. For the past three weeks, we've been dipping our toes into this topic of Torah and law and legal code and wisdom literature and how each of these things applies in our lives. Because that's where the text has taken us. But for the remainder of the book of Exodus, we're going to be putting these topics on the back burner and returning to them in the book of Leviticus. Now, why are we doing this? Well, it's because the text shifts in this way, of course. And when this shift happens in the course of the text, it's super easy to lose track of what it is that we're attempting to discern from the text. So let's return back to remind us all of what it is that we're to be on the lookout for as we proceed. Keep in mind, we are still in the book of Exodus. From the ground, from our perspective, it seems as if the topics under discussion have shifted somewhat, as if they've taken a hard turn and put us onto a different path. We were reading narrative, and then in a sudden shift, the text becomes completely different. What we are reading now in many ways seems completely disconnected from what we read at the beginning of the book, if we look to our normal cues for reading something. And I would submit that this is because we have come into this book primed for the story of an exodus, the grand narrative of escape and redemption. But that's all over. So what is it that we're reading now if it's no longer an exodus narrative? Because we're still in the same book. To recognize this, we need to shift our perspective some. What is it that this book is called in the Hebrew? It's called Shemot, names. And with this Hebrew name, we can begin to grasp the larger theme under discussion in this text. What is the name of Hashem? Because on the whole, that is truly what this book is about. Once again, it's not about the pronunciation, but the character, the quality, and the authority that defines our God. An Exodus narrative, that's only half the story. The other half of the story is instruction and blueprints. And these things, as we're going to find out, they teach us just as much about the God that we serve 
as the Exodus narrative does. In fact, it's in these latter sections of the text that we will learn the most profound and intimate things about our God. You see, the Exodus narrative is something that draws everyone in. It describes the nature of Hashem as He is presented to the world at large. Grand topics of justice and mercy and distinction and redemption and power and authority and more, they're all rolled together in the course of this epic and exciting narrative. But here and now, with the advent of Mount Sinai, those topics shift a bit. No longer is the text attempting to teach the world about the name of God. Instead, the text is now entering into discussion of the name of God with those who have joined themselves to that name. But there's still the revelation of the name of God at work in the text, but no longer for the world at large. Now, only for those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Now for those who have been declared all that Hashem has said we will do, as Israel declared back in chapter 19, verse 8. That initial declaration based only on what had been revealed up to that point. A declaration made in ignorance somewhat of just what that might mean and based solely on what had come before. Now though, now in chapter 24, we'll read the same declaration being made twice. Now the people have an idea of what is expected of them as the people who bear the name of Hashem. Now he has, in the course of the last few chapters, revealed a bit more of his character. And as we saw, it is a character that gives value to all. He is a God that treasures all of his people, the poor, victims, slaves, women, even animals that belong to them. Every part of his nation is treasured by him, and as such, it must be ruled in justice. It must reflect his qualities. We must reflect his qualities. And as we read last week, there is great reward for those who act in this manner to the Most High, to those who properly reflect his image. And so this week we run into another transition in the discussion of the name of Hashem. He has declared his character through legal code over the course of the last few chapters, but now, for the rest of Exodus, the text is going to focus on our status and relationship to him. How it is that we should relate to God and to his people. And that discussion begins in this chapter. The Book of the Covenant is closed for a time, and now comes a discussion on the place and manner of our relationship. And so as we read this chapter, let's look for both. For the covenant portion is wrapped up. Now comes living life together. And so we will end for a moment our discussion of the Torah of action with others and begin the topic of Torah of relationship towards him. A topic that truly will not end till the end of the book of Numbers. Exodus 24 and to Moshe he said, Come up to Hashem, you and Aaron and Nadav and Avihu and the seventy of the elders of Israel, and you shall bow yourselves from a distance. But Moshe shall draw near to Hashem by himself, and let them not draw near, nor let the people go up with him. And Moshe came and related to the people all the words of Hashem and all the right rulings. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which Hashem has spoken we shall do. And Moshe wrote down all the words of Hashem, and rose up early in the morning, and built an altar at the foot of the mountain, and twelve standing columns for the twelve tribes of Israel. 
And he sent young men of the children of Israel, and they offered ascending offerings, and they sacrificed sacrifices of peace offerings to Hashem of bowls. And Moshe took half the blood and put it in the basin, and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. And he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that Hashem has spoken we shall do and obey. And Moshe took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, See the blood of the covenant which Hashem has made with you concerning all these words. And Moshe went up, also Aaron, Nedav, and Avihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel, and under his feet like a paved work for sapphire stone, and like the heavens for brightness. Yet he did not stretch out his hand against the chiefs of the children of Israel, and they saw God, and they ate, and they drank. And Hashem said to Moshe, Come up to me on the mountain and be there, while I give you tablets of stone, and the Torah and the command which I have written to teach them. And Moshe arose with his assistant Yehoshua, and Moshe went up to the mountain of Elohim. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we come back, and see, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has matters, let him go to them. And Moshe went up into the mountain, and a cloud covered the mountain. And the honor of Hashem dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moshe out of the midst of the cloud. And the appearance of the honor of Hashem was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain, before the eyes of the children of Israel. And Moshe went into the midst of the cloud and went up into the mountain. And it came to be that Moshe was on the mountain forty days and forty nights. So Hashem has just communicated the terms of the marriage contract to Israel, the Book of the Covenant, as it's called in this chapter, that we just read. This was a contractual agreement that provided many benefits for all parts of the relationship, and it's here that we begin to examine our relationship with God. The wife in a marriage, especially in the ancient Near East, received the benefits of being cared for, having a place of safety and protection from the evils of the world according to the power and the authority of the husband. The more honorable and powerful the husband, the greater the protection and shelter that the bride could expect from her husband. On the flip side, the husband gained a person who would ensure that his domain was cared for while he was interacting with the world. It was the duty of the wife to care for her husband's house, to upkeep and to beautify and to create a home. He would gain a person who was dedicated to him and his vision and who would enable him to pursue that family vision. And in this way and a thousand others, the pair are joined together to become a team. A team with a singular vision and goal. And this is the relationship that Hashem is calling Israel into. A partnership where both parties have duties towards the other. A singular vision for them both to work towards. And the expectation that both uphold their part of the agreement towards their shared goal. And at its base level, this is true. When your husband is a king and has the greatest honor and authority, there is a protocol to the relationship that must be obeyed. And no book of the Bible reflects this fact of relationship better than the book of Esther. Esther was the queen to a great and honorable and high, mighty king. As queen, she gained much honor. As queen, there was protection and wealth beyond imagining. In fact, one can say that there was so much that belonged to her husband that she did not have to worry about the next day or her simple provisions. Everything that she needed was there simply by asking. Food delivered on time at all times, protection from predatory, clothing without care. In fact, that's the way we should act in relationship to our king, right? 
Anyway, uh, Esther's job, however, was to be a companion to the king and to seek the welfare of his kingdom. But in the ancient Near East, the presence of the king was holy. And this is something that goes far beyond religion. Holiness is a status of set-apartness. And when it comes to our God, holiness takes on a specific cast of what holiness means. But all ancient kings were seen as holy. And to come into the presence of a king without invitation was to take your own life in your hands, even for the bride of the king. And that's what we see reflected here as the wedding ceremony is drawing to a close. So the question arises, how can a holy God, whose very nature is holiness, draw near to a people who by nature are not holy in any way? How can these two statuses be reconciled together? And the text here tells us how if we pay attention. In verse 1, Moses is told to bring the elders of Israel up to meet with Hashem, but that they are to do so from a distance. This is a recognition of God's holiness, His unapproachableness without invitation. Simply barging into His presence is something that is dangerous to the one who's simply busting in. But as with any king, he does have those people chosen who can enter into his presence. Men like Moses and Yeshua and the high priest who are given the opportunity to enter into the presence of the high king. The rest of the people, however, for their own safety, are to remain disconnected from the intimate presence of the king. And when this is transgressed and someone encroaches on the holiness of God, we see something fascinating. In Leviticus 10, we read of Nadav and Avihu coming into the presence of God in an unauthorized way, and we read of them in this chapter. Then later, in number 16, once again, we read of the 251stborn who wished to burn incense before Hashem. And in 2 Samuel, the man Uzzah touches the ark and dies instantly. In each of these cases, the one who attempted to enter into the presence of the king was destroyed. This holy nature of God is just that. It's not a choice. It's not something he does to you. It's his nature. And for one who is unholy to come into a holy place is to seek to be unmade. It's asking for your own destruction. It's simple physics. But when Hashem asks you to come to him, when you are invited into his presence, it's then that he has to make an effort to restrain himself, to restrain his nature. For what do we read in verse 11? The elders came close to the presence of Hashem, and he did not stretch out his hand to strike them. Hashem, for the sake of relationship, restrained his own natural reaction to the presence of something that was opposed to his nature. Why? Why would Hashem restrain himself from acting in his own nature? For the sake of relationship. For the sake of his bride whom he loves. For the sake of the vision and the hope that he's giving to this people. The parallel to this in the book of Esther is when Esther, after three days of prayer and fasting, enters into the presence of the king uninvited. And the king, for the sake of his relationship to his bride, extends mercy and compassion, and withholds his natural response that his holiness demanded. And in this exercise, in the allowance of one representative to come before him, 
we catch our first glimpse of the system of priests that is to be revealed in the upcoming chapters and verses. Because the model is laid out here. One representative, the high priest, allowed to enter into the presence of God. The elders, which later is transferred to the priestly class, a cross-section of Israel, is allowed to approach close, but still required to keep some distance. They do, however, get to come partway in, and they receive the honor of eating in the presence of the king. The remainder of the people are to stand outside at the altar and to worship. They are to remain at the base of the mountain so that God's holiness is not offended. Just because God is making the exception for the sake of a few representatives with authority does not mean that His holiness is no longer a consideration. His holiness is His nature, and that is not changing. That will never change. And we see from this an introduction to the topic that we will enter into in much greater detail in the upcoming weeks. The tabernacle, temple service, what they represent and the foundations for these things are present in this chapter. And so I want to spend some time here introducing the tabernacle by examining these things as they're presented here. You see, the tabernacle It's more than simply a tent. It's more than a house. The tabernacle is a parable. It's a picture and a metaphor for our relationship to Hashem. It teaches us about who He is and about who we are, and it points towards the greater truth of the priority that Hashem is calling us to enter into a relationship with Him. And when we recognize this, that the tabernacle and later the temple are living pictures of a greater truth, the text of the tabernacle opens up to us in ways that were previously unknown. Hebrew speaks about this at length, but this book calls out this reality very specifically in chapter 9. Hebrews 9, verses 2 through 10. For a tent was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand and the table and the showbread, which is called the holy place. And after the second veil, the part of the tent which is called the Most Holy, to which belong the gold censer, and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot and held the manna, and the rod of Aaron that budded. And the tablets of the covenant, and above the cherubim of honor, were overshadowing the place of atonement, about which we do not now speak in detail, and these having been prepared like this. The priests always went into the first part of the tent, accomplishing the services, But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for sins of ignorance of the people. Yet the Holy Spirit signified this, that the way into the most holy place was not yet made manifest while the first tent has a standing, which was a parable for the present time, in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which are unable to perfect the one serving as to his conscience, only as to food and drinks and different washings and fleshly regulations imposed until the time of setting matters straight. It says very specifically in there that the tabernacle is a parable for us to learn from. Although it did serve a very real purpose for those who lived during the time of its ministry, a purpose that we'll speak about at length in upcoming weeks, but contained in this, a very real service is a parable of things greater and things still to come. And as we will see as we dig into the structure, we will see the parable of tabernacle is not just for the past. The parable of tabernacle is one that teaches us of our own future and the hope that we have. And then this chapter, 
we get a taste of that. For what is it that every person must do before entering the space of the tabernacle? They must cleanse themselves from the unclean. Well, uncleanness itself, it's not a sin. There's nothing inherently wrong with being unclean. But it does contain with it the stench of death. And that's something that cannot enter into God's presence. He will not allow uncleanness to come near him. And that is something that is so contrary to his nature as to be a purposeful affront if it is brought near to him. The things that fall under this heading of uncleanness are things like tzarot, a host of skin diseases that we translate as leprosy. Sexual emissions, not a sin in the right context, but not something that you should bring into the throne room in contact with any dead thing. All of these are included in the status of uncleanness, and all are associated with death in some way. But uncleanness is something that can be taken care of with water and some time. And in chapter 19, we read that this is what Israel was to do in preparation for the Sinai ceremony. Why is uncleanness such an affront? Because you can take care of uncleanness. We can address this in ourselves through discipline and action. Holiness, no. We'll get to holiness more later. So the next thing is the role of the priests, which we see reflected here. We've already talked about the position of priest as represented here in the text, a, a single person able to approach the presence of God for a time. A larger representative body that can approach God at a distance and partake in the meals from his table. And then there's the layman. That's the, the body of the nation at large who are invited to approach the mountain of God and to join together in worship and in the nation-building exercise that Hashem is instituting in their midst. And then on the outside, the rest of the world. And we see in the tabernacle the same level of separation that occurs here on the mountain. A place, the Holy of Holies, in which the presence of Hashem dwells. The place in which heaven exists on earth. Not a mingling of the two, heaven and earth, but rather is the fullness of reality of heaven existing in our midst. A place in which, if a human enters, he would be torn apart and cease to exist. Unless, unless that human is invited to enter into that place and extended the protection of the one who lives there while present. Unless Hashem makes a concerted effort to protect the mortal flesh of a man in a place which is contrary to his own nature. The place that is wholly suited to his presence and his nature and to us is just plain deadly. We're going to discover that throughout Scripture, this place of the Holy of Holies is a depiction of the heavenly throne room itself. It is the place where God rules the earth from his throne, where he takes up his rest as a king and ruler of all that has been created. And we catch the glimpse of this reality in this chapter. For what is it that the elders see of God as they eat their meal in his presence halfway up the mountain? In verse 10, they saw the God of Israel and under his feet like a paved work of sapphire stones, like heavens for brightness. That phrase, like the heavens for brightness, is the pointer to the reality. They saw, in a way that their minds could comprehend, the reality that Hashem stands on the heavens. In their way of thinking, he stood on top of the firmament, that thing that exists above us that we call the sky. His place is in the heavens, above all that we know on our experience in the mortal realm. 
and the heavens themselves are the place where he rests his feet, and that place is on the top of a mountain. In the ancient Near East, the feet of a person were the most shameful part of a person, and from the elder's perspective, they gained honor simply by their proximity to Hashem's most shameful place. They got to stand near his feet, and they gained honor through it. Now, David understood the Ark and the Holy of Holies in this way. In First Chronicles 28.2, Then sovereign David rose to his feet and said, Hear me, my brothers and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house for the rest of the Ark of the Covenant of Hashem and for the footstool of our God, and had made preparations to build it. Psalm 132, 7-8 speaks of this through a parallelism. Let us go into his dwelling places, and let us bow ourselves at his footstool. Arise, O Hashem, to your place of rest, you and the ark of your strength. Isaiah speaks of this in a similar way about the house of God and his footstool in Isaiah 66, 1. Thus said Hashem, The heavens are my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you would build for me, and where is this place of my rest? The holy place is recorded as the place of heaven on earth. Jewish oral tradition records that the Holy of Holies in the first temple was 20 cubits cubed, and that with the ark in place, there were 10 cubits from the right side of the ark to the right wall, and 10 cubits from the left side of the ark to the left wall. The ark itself took up no space whatsoever within the Holy of Holies. It's a space without space. It's a space without time. It's a space that is different than our usual understanding and perception of how the world works. It's a space of heaven. Now, is the story of the Jews tell, is it true? I, I don't know. Perhaps it is. If heaven truly did exist in that one place on earth, then it would stand to reason that space and time ceased to function in the ways that space and time function for us humans. And this is a glimpse that the elders get of Hashem as they eat in His presence. So if the Holy of Holies is the place of only God, the place where He alone can exist, except for that one time a year when the high priest would get to enter in, then the holy place, the front part of the tent, the place with the menorah, the table of showbread, and the altar of incense. It's analogous to the place where heaven and earth are joined together. This is the place where the elders went, that was halfway up the mountain. This is the place of communion with God and his representatives. And following this pattern, the base of the mountain is itself analogous to the outer courtyard of the temple. Still in God's presence, but in the place of sacrifice, in the place of the layman. The courtyard itself is a place of holiness, but it's a lower type of holiness. In order to enter into the holy place, there had to be an eight-day period of consecration. There had to be particular garments worn. There had to be a summons to enter, which at the time of Israel was limited to the sons of Aaron. And it was here in the holy place that we find the table with the bread on it, the table of showbread that the priests ate of weekly a meal which recalled this event of the elders eating in the presence of God as part of the sealing of this covenant, the place where they saw the light of heaven as they ate. And then finally in the tabernacle there is the outer courtyard, the place of the general population of Israel, the place of altars and sacrifices, the place of the blood that seals and heals the covenant. In chapter 24, the outer courtyard is the base of the mountain.
the place where the people gather together and worship and sacrifice. And it's here where the altar and the twelve pillars were built in verse 4. And this is the place where the sacrifices were offered in verse 5. The place where the blood was gathered and sprinkled on the altar and the book of the covenant was read. The place where the people agreed to obey all that had been read in their presence. The ten words from God, the book of the covenant from the last few chapters. And it's here that that weird ritual of sprinkling the blood of the sacrifice on the people was accomplished. The blood that sealed the covenant. The blood that consummated the marriage. In the ancient Near East, a marriage was sealed with blood on the first night of marriage. If you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm not going to go any further into that. In the blood, it was a sign that the covenant was true. And it was the sign of the blood that had the power to bind this relationship together, we'll find out later. This is so very odd to us, but to them, to the ancient Near East, this made absolute sense. The covenant was sealed by this action, by being covered in the blood. It was consummated between a husband and his bride. So while this is very odd and even disgusting to us, this was, in their eyes, the way that a covenant of this sort was sealed. And so we read of this occurring in the physical, and we get disgusted as we try to picture this action in our heads. But this too is a parable. It's a living picture that teaches us about our covenant with Yeshua. The author of Hebrews states it this way in Hebrews 10.22, Let us draw near with a true heart in completeness of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from a wicked conscience and our bodies washed with clean water. Peter put it this way in 1 Peter 1-2, through Peter, an emissary of Yeshua the Messiah, to the chosen strangers in the dispersion, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, sanctified by the Spirit unto obedience, and sprinkling of the blood of Yeshua the Messiah, favor and peace be increased to you. And John puts it this way in Revelation. Revelation 7.14, And I said to him, Master, you know. And he said to me, These are those coming out of the great distress, having washed their robes and made them white. In the blood of the Lamb. Now, each one of these we will discuss in greater detail as we go through the instructions for the tabernacle and the priestly garments, as these texts and more make use of this tabernacle parable that teach us of our present reality. For what are white garments and what do they signify? White garments are the garments of the priests, the one who get to enter into the holy place. And all who wash their garments in the blood of Yeshua have made their garments white according to John. This parable of the tabernacle is one that's deep and it's wide and it covers a ton of theological ground for those who are willing to do the work and to study it. For the tabernacle is a parable, as Hebrew says. It teaches us things in the language of symbolism. And as I have attempted to establish in prior teachings in Genesis, symbolism is a language that was understood by ancient societies. It was the way that they thought, and so Scripture speaks in the language of symbolism. If the tabernacle is not a parable, if it's only a tent, then reading through these upcoming chapters and studying them is pointless. We don't have that tent today. We can't replicate these practices. In fact, if we were to do so in the physical right now, as if we were living out our worship in this way, it would cheapen and pervert these instructions. 
The only hope that we have of understanding this excellent building is to recognize the pattern, to use Scripture itself as the key to this parable, and to use chapter 24 as the beginning pointer towards this exercise. And as Moses ascends the mountain to enter into the presence of God, he goes through a seven-day waiting period on the doorstep. He is forced to wait six more days before entry into the Holy of Holies. He himself goes through a process that we're about to read in Exodus of a consecration, and we will miss it because we're so focused on the procedure and not on the parable. And it's these things that can reveal to us this greater depth of who God is and how we are to interact with Him. Because you see, He is holy, and we are not of ourselves. In fact, we cannot be or gain holy at all through anything that we do. Holiness is a status that is granted, however, to all who enter into covenant, and only to those. Leviticus 19.2 says, Speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel and say to them, Be holy, for I, Hashem your God, am holy. The way that this is written in the English, it's not really a proper conjugation of the Hebrew. It's not to say, Be holy through what you do, and here's how to be holy. But it's in the context of, Be holy because that's what you are. Unlike uncleanness, something that we can take care of ourselves, holiness is a status that is imparted to us only because of our relationship with Him. Because Hashem, this holy God whose very nature will incinerate anyone who transgresses that holiness, seeks to be in relationship with you and with me and with all of us. But that is impossible without us being granted holiness from Him. And so He does. He grants this status to His own, so that relationship is possible. And this is the nature of our God. He loves His creation. He wants to inhabit His creation. And this is what we learned from the very beginning. But He can't. Why? Because Adam brought sin and death into the world and made them a part of our life. Our world has become anathema to the nature of our God. But he has a plan to return us to this place. He has a plan to return the earth to a place of holiness. A plan to bring us back to him and to redeem us from sin and death fully and to bring his holy place to earth in order to dwell with us, to bring all of creation into the holy place, that place where heaven and earth meet and overlap in a very real way, the place where only those who have white garments can enter in. For in Revelation we read of the following occurring in the new creation, Revelation 21, 9-10, And one of the seven messengers who held the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and spoke with me, saying, Come. I shall show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of the heaven from God. Continuing on in verses 15 through 17. And he who spoke with me had a golden measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall, and the city lies four-cornered, and its length is as great as its breadth. 
And he measured the city with a rod, twelve thousand stadia. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. And he measured its wall, a hundred and forty-four forearms, according to the measure of a man, that is, of a messenger. The New Jerusalem is a cube. And to the Hebrew of the first century, what was the significance of a cube? We just talked about it. The Holy of Holies in the temple was a cube. The Holy of Holies in the tabernacle was a cube. This passage is also a parable speaking of the holy dwelling place of God descending to earth once more. God living in our presence and heaven coming to earth. And this is the goal that unites us together. Because as I stated before, a wife is under the authority of her husband, and it's the job of the wife to pursue the goals of the husbands within her sphere. And so too it is the duty as as the bride of God to pursue his goals here on the earth. Those goals being new creation and a kingdom of life. Those are the goals that he has stated. And so it's our job. As Israel does in upcoming chapters, it's our job to engage in the work of new creation in the kingdom of God. This is to be our goal, and the house that we have been given by God to care for with this goal in mind. It's called the earth. And we as humans, we have failed miserably in our calling. But Yeshua has come, and in his life he modeled for us just how to accomplish this task. And in his blood we can enter into the covenant of life. And he entered into the holy of holies in the heaven as the perfect high priest who makes intercession on our behalf continually. And he is the man who is our king and our high priest and our Messiah. And he invites us to participate in this task. The task that will reflect the name of our husband into the world for all to see. New creation. The kingdom of life. The presence of God in our midst. God and man in relationship with one another. This is the goal of Deresh Chai. This is our hope as we seek life. To dwell with God in our midst. Living in the truth of the tabernacle. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Darish Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.